My name is Dan O'Brien, and I'm the Chief Economist here at the IIEA, Ireland's leading international affairs think tank. I'm delighted to welcome you to our latest episode of the IIEA Insights podcast, where today I'll be discussing the United States after the midterm elections with Edward, Edward Luce, US national editor and columnist at the Financial Times. Unfortunately, due to a technical glitch, we lost the opening few minutes of the discussion dealing with attitudes to Ukraine in both parties. So let's pick it up on the question of how much concern exists in Washington about Russia using nuclear weapons. There's a really interesting division here amongst the sort of general foreign policy community in Washington. People are very dismissive about it, saying, no, he'll never use nuclear weapons. Don't let his saber rattling deter us from pushing on. Inside the administration and in the Pentagon, by contrast, they're taking it very, very seriously. And I've heard extremely senior people in the administration tell me that they they saw the chance of Putin actually using tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield um, as about one in five to one in four. That is a non-trivial risk. And I and this was in response to me saying it looks like what a one in 20 saying No, 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 far higher than that. Um, so the administration itself takes it very seriously. And that explains why some of the more maximalist um, demands that, you know, uh, that the West and the US in particular sell them, well, give them F-15s or recycled MiGs have not been met. Um, the Biden administration has been pretty cautious in not crossing that line. It's been pretty cautious in saying, um, look, we don't have a final outcome here. We don't have a final map this has to be something decided between Russia and Ukraine in negotiations. That does remain their official stance. And they've been very careful never to echo and often to distance themselves from uh, suggestions uh, like Russia should be broken up or Putin should be put on trial for war crimes. You know, these are not stances that are conducive to ending wars, well or badly. Um, and the Biden administration, therefore, is different. You have to differentiate it from the more general foreign policy um, tone. I'll just add one sort of coda to that, which is that, um, you know, the neoconservatives were originally Democrats, and then they got, as the phrase went, mugged by reality in the 70s, and they joined the Republican Party. They're back in the Democratic Party now, pretty much to a person. Okay. The Democratic Party is the home of neoconservatives. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a really uh, good insight that uh, I certainly wasn't aware of. Uh, and a one in four, one in five chance of, of nuclear weapons use. That, that's that's pretty pretty frightening. Um, on something else, of course, we, we, we're all looking at America, see how polarized its politics have become. But, but on China, perhaps that's the issue that has most across the aisle sort of consensus. Is that, would that be fair to say? And, and maybe those of us in Europe, don't quite get just how views on China have changed over the past five, seven years that that the US uh, across the board really does see a new Cold War emerging with China. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, arguably, we're already in that new Cold War. I think the point of uh, where that that sort of final line was crossed was early in October, when the Biden administration, you know, announced this, um, uh, cut off 
of high-end semiconductors and any technology that can assist artificial intelligence to China and not just cut off of exports, but cut off of licensing wherever these are produced and of any of these that are produced by foreigners using US um, production equipment. So these are very, very total um, and uh, not, not a peep of dissent um, out of either party. The, there is consensus uh, on China being um, the chief rival to American global leadership and that this is no longer a positive sum game of competition between the US and China, which was the somewhat awkward line that, you know, pertained really since since after Tiananmen Square, since after that had died down, really since the early 90s, that we can accommodate China's peaceful rise. That's no longer the line um, uh, in Washington. The line is that China's rise will come at America's expense. And this is now a zero sum game. And, and the semiconductors ruling, though it might sound quite technical, um, and you know some of the detail is yet to come out, um, but the semiconductors ruling, you know, is is a really sort of clear statement that because high end chips and other associated um, um, technologies such as sort of advanced graphic processing, um, because these are dual use, because they can be used both in the high end economy, uh, increasingly the mainstream economy. Um, but also by the military to, you know, improve their hypersonic missiles and develop their nuclear warheads more, um, that, that the US isn't just shutting off, attempting to shut off China's military development, which is entirely understandable. It's also shutting off its economic development. And, and so this was really a Rubicon. And as I say, nobody got to the left of that. The only criticisms of that policy have been from the right, which is you're not going far enough. Decoupling should be more complete and more rapid. And on decoupling, of course, there's two sides. Well, there's many sides to decoupling, but one is on the import side. And Trump famously slapped tariffs on, on Chinese goods. In terms of future import restrictions, tariffs on Chinese goods to move that decoupling forward, do you see that as being possible or is there too much concern about the inflationary impacts of cutting off cheap Chinese goods? How do you see the, the decoupling piece on the import side developing? Well, what, one of the easiest ways the administration could have reduced headline inflation um, in the last year or so um, would have been to remove the um, import tariffs on Chinese commodities and metals and steel and aluminium, et cetera. Um, but they didn't do that. And these of course were legacy, legacy um, uh, punitive tariffs that Trump had imposed. So there would have been a fairly easy political rationale to do that, which is look, Trump just got it wrong. He's targeted the wrong things. He targeted 20th century stuff that has nothing to do with great power competition. We are focused on advanced semiconductors, which do, have everything to do with the 21st century. They, they could have had an easy out on those tariffs, but they didn't. Um, so I don't think they're gonna be removed, but I really don't see, you know, um, uh, except in certain discrete areas, again, on the more high tech sort of end, I don't really see any um, any Trumpian style tariffs. And um, the, the, the exception to that is, is fairly high tech. It's cotton grown in Xinjiang. Um, which is then used to create uh, solar panels 
And as you know, China is by far the world's biggest producer of solar panels, but a huge amount of the raw material that goes into those panels comes from Xinjiang and allegedly from forced labor. So more punitive tariffs on discrete areas that have human rights implications, I would expect from the Biden administration, but these sort of 20th century wars over, you know, soya and wheat and stuff, uh, really beside the point, strategically speaking. So I don't expect more um, from them. I also don't expect them to initiate any real trade initiatives with China's neighbors, um, okay. which would be a logical thing to do. But I just don't think domestic politics um, uh, will permit that in the United States right now. In the sense that there's generally been a sort of an anti-globalization, anti-free trade uh, trend? There is. And again, this is bipartisan. So as you know, in history, only a minority of Democrats, often they were president, like Bill Clinton, but only a minority of Democrats have been in favor of trade deals like NAFTA, which was passed under Clinton, or um, China's accession to the WTO. <clears throat> the Uruguay round um, was, was um, completed under Clinton, um, but mostly passed by Republicans. Um, when it came to Congress ratifying these deals. Uh, now Republicans are more like Democrats. It's a minority in each party that are in favor of trade deals. Um, there is just um, a, a, an almost sort of faith-based principle because there isn't much empirics to back it up that globalization is responsible for the post-industrial plight of large tracts of middle America. I mean, in reality, if you talk to economists, um, also to businesses, um, the, the real culprit here are two things. One is technology, it's automation. And manufacturing jobs everywhere in the world, including in China, are shrinking. The number of people working in manufacturing is just going down. But the second culprit would be fiscal policy, domestic fiscal policy. What, what the system here should have done is what you know countries like Germany and the Scandies do pretty well. Um, which is uh, fund workers to reskill, cushion the transition period. Um, and then you don't get these big anti-trade backlashes because they find that they, you know, there are new secure jobs in um, other sectors, um, particularly the service sector. But it's a nostrum in American politics and, and politics is perception that trade is to blame for um, the middle-class um, economic squeeze in this country. And that means it's almost impossible in this climate to see the Biden administration, or for that matter, a Republican one, um, initiating trade deals um, with anybody. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you picked up that point because as, as somebody sort of looks at numbers and looks at globalization, it just always amazes me how that, that view has taken hold in America, that evidence-free view that, that trade has destroyed manufacturing, where, as you say, it's, 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 it's other factors. And if it were the case, you know, it's declining everywhere thanks to productivity. Uh, but it, it is striking that something that is not actually based on evidence is so widely held, even amongst, um, you know, thoughtful people. Um, but maybe yeah, it's sorry. Go ahead. No, it is, um, and uh, you know, I've, uh, some surprising people. I won't name names, but there are people who I, I think should know better. But sometimes, you know, if when something becomes conventional wisdom, it becomes very difficult to argue against. And this is conventional wisdom here. 
power of the narrative. Maybe we could could we bring Europe, the EU, into that sort of um, US-China relationship. And Europe has become, in fact, during the pandemic, we, we started to import and trade, import, export more from China, uh, from and to China than the United States for the first time ever uh, collectively in the EU. Um, how is Europe perceived as an ally in the rivalry or Cold War with China from, from over there? It's a very interesting question, and it's kind of a work in progress, this. It's hard to give you a definitive answer, but it's... Uh, let me give you one um, sort of indication. The semiconductor announcement, I, I believe, hugely underappreciated announcement, by the way. Um, I wrote a column about it, um, which my first sentence was, what if the superpower of the, of the day declared war on the great power of the rising great power of the day and nobody noticed declared economic war that is not war um, and nobody noticed um, well the Europeans noticed um, and the the businesses affected which is potentially quite a few notice think of the Netherlands ASML which you know it, it's China market is key to um, uh, its component the role its component plays in high-end semiconductors it essentially decapitates its largest market um, a very interesting indicator from that ruling um, last month, from that um, order uh, announced last month, is that it was unilateral. The Americans have been trying to make this a Western declaration, um, and they didn't succeed. Um, because I think many Americans think, uh, many Europeans um, think that the US is way ahead of the rest of the West in terms of uh, China hawkishness and in terms of the particular policies that would be best to follow. Um, and so there is going to continue to be um, a, a lot of, I, I suspect, fairly heated or at least intensive dialogue across the Atlantic on to what degree can we coordinate on China. And I think there are differences of opinion, not just across the Atlantic, but within uh, Europe too, between Europeans on this question. Olaf Scholz, Germany's chancellor, um, traveled to China last week. Uh, now, you know, by far the biggest lobby group in Germany when it comes to China is Volkswagen. Um, and Volkswagen's not directly affected um, by this semiconductor ruling, although, of course, high-end chips go into cars too. Um, but... Uh, it, it just underscored, it reminded us the degree to which Germany relies on China as an export market is second only to the degree to which it uh, used to rely on Russia as an energy um, import um, supplier. Um, so there are quite thorny economic differences of interest here between Biden administration and its European partners. And it's going to become an increasingly sort of prominent uh, source of discussion and friction. And just, you, you mentioned Schultz, obviously huge change in the German leadership after such a long period with Angela Merkel and the war completely upending German foreign policy. In, in particular on the Germans, uh, is there any sort of consensus uh, in Washington on the reliability of Germany as an ally? Has that changed? Has it shifted? Uh, is it less important? Uh, yeah, there's been some sort of positive shock here in Washington, the degree to which February 24th 
um, has galvanized a change in German foreign policy. There's no doubt about it. The announcements of massive increases in defense spending, um, the um, willingness after some chiding to um, send offensive lethal military equipment to Ukraine, um, the um, willingness to cut off um, the Russian gas supply um, um, pipeline and an oil um, pipeline, as it were, um, all of which has taken Washington by surprise. This is not the Germany that um, that the Americans are used to. And so there is a, there is a in general, I think, a fairly positive reading of how the German coalition has um, performed one um, element of this coalition. The Green Party is, interestingly enough, the most hawkish on foreign policy. Um, amongst um, uh, all three of the parties in, in um, far more hawkish than the Social Democrats. Um, and that includes China, not just Russia. So uh, you know, the Greens are Germany's fastest growing party. Uh, and I think, you know, to, to their surprise, um, conservatives and liberals in Washington are looking to German Greens to echo their agenda more closely than any other party in Germany. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, history with Greens and uh, in in government in Germany. The wider transatlantic trade relationship, you know, again, as you mentioned with the chips thing, it may have gone a bit under the radar. But you know, I've heard a lot on the American side about the uh, carbon border adjustment tax that Europe is 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 talking about implementing, and Americans view that as as being. Uh, protectionist and possibly even illegal under WTO rules. And the Europeans now are saying, saying that elements of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US are exactly the same, protectionist, possibly against WTO rules. So there seems to be plenty of disagreement that maybe is not getting uh, as much attention as it might given so many other things going on. But do, do, do you detect a sort of uh, worsening of the relationship in, in recent months in any way? Yeah, I mean, uh... You know, the Americans are going to point out areas where Europe is potentially in breach of the World Trade Organization rules. And that's that's going to become a familiar refrain if things continue to go on like they are. But since the United States refuses to <laughs> confirm a quorum of appellate judges to the WTO, the WTO is not functioning, or at least that aspect, key aspect of it. That, that makes these rulings on trade policies isn't functioning. So it's an entirely academic complaint. If, if the United States continues to believe in international trade and rules governing international trade, then it has to put its money where its mouth is. But domestic politics, as we were discussing earlier, stops it from putting its money where its mouth is. So there are, there are some deep contradictions there in America's response. The reality is, that the Inflation Reduction Act passed in, in August um, and certain sort of quite similar things that Europe is doing are relatively protectionist. I mean, the Buy American is at the core of the Inflation Reduction Act for, electronic for electric vehicles, for um, inputs to renewable energy projects and so on. There is a, there is a protectionist um, element to that, and not just to irritating to Europe, but to others like South Koreans, in particular, we're irritated by the EV requirement that EV can only get tax breaks 
for the consumer if it's made in the United States. Um, so uh, we're going to get more of this. We've got to sort of, you know, make it in America, kind of informal policy here. And Europe is now discussing, uh, you know, make it in Europe, um, made in Europe policy too. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the, 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 the headwinds are not with globalization at the moment. Um, I don't think anybody is explicitly endorsing deglobalization, but frankly, what is globalization? Globalization has been driven in the last generation principally by China's coming out party. And China's coming out party is over, um, not just because America wants it to be over, but because Xi Jinping wants it to be over. Um, uh, or at least the import dimension to China's coming out party. He wants it to be over. He wants China to become more self-reliant uh, and all parts of the value chain from high-end semiconductors, in which he has no choice now, but right down to all kinds of intermediate goods. Um, so, uh, you know, the winds are not with globalization and that is going to produce friction and it's going to produce friction between allies. In the last 15 minutes or so, Ed, we might shift from, from the, the bigger picture pieces like globalization to, to domestic politics, which U.S. domestic politics, which I know our, our members always have an interest in. You, you write in today's edition of the paper, quote, the anger of America's voter does not always equate to recklessness. Is that, is that a faint hope that maybe... U.S. politics has passed peak polarization and that maybe the Trump phenomenon is fading? Um, faint. Um, uh, look, I mean, it's very interesting to see what happened uh, on Tuesday night. Um, the more extreme candidates that Republicans put up for Senate, um, like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, and for governorships like Doug Mastriano, the uber MAGA uh, election denying um, candidate for Republican candidate to be governor of Pennsylvania. Um, Don Balduck, ex-colonel, um, um, Mike Flynn sort of qualities to him uh, as the Republican candidate for New Hampshire's Senate seat. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, a ton of other names I could go through. Those are the ones that lost and they lost pretty badly. So clearly, uh, there was a differentiation in how uh, how voters responded, depending on candidate quality is what political scientists call it. But what I would call is depending on whether they were sort of ultra Trumpians or not. And the ultra Trumpians lost. So Trump lost bigger than anybody on Tuesday night. Um, the Republicans who won um, tended to be the more moderate ones. Moderate is, of course, a relative term. Um, uh, and also Trump's potential rival, Ron DeSantis, who was reelected as Florida's governor with a thumping majority. Trump was in anticipation of that, an anticipation of DeSantis being his challenger, um, already sort of attacking him before the election. Um, so, you know, we can see where the tension is, but is DeSantis or would DeSantis be auditioning to end MAGA Republicanism, to end America first Republicanism? No, he, he would just be auditioning to replace Trump as leader of it. Um, and, you know, that's an important distinction. The end of Trump does not mean the end of Trumpism. Um, the party is very deeply committed to um, uh, its admiration of Viktor Orban. 
it's very deeply committed to further rolling back the social reforms that we've seen since the 1960s, not just overturning Roe v. Wade, but there's a whole host of other stuff um, like gay marriage that um, animates, uh, overturning gay marriage that animates the base that are independent of Trump. And, you know, there were still a bunch of election deniers who were elected, um, far fewer than you might have anticipated, but there were still a lot elected on Tuesday night. Um, where the glimmer of hope would come is, I think uh, the, the attack on Paul Pelosi, the speaker's husband, this guy breaking into her home in San Francisco in the middle of the night, uh, assaulting him with a hammer, fracturing this 82-year-old man's skull, sending them to, to the intensive care unit. Um, the fact that Trump and a number of other prominent Republicans um, refused to condemn this, expressed no sympathy for Paul Pelosi or her husband, and the fact that this occurred in the days leading up to the midterm elections is, I think, an underappreciated factor in what happened on Tuesday night. Uh, you know, people like me pay attention to politics 365 days a year, but, um, you know, I, I'm a minority and I'm, I'm like a stamp collector. Most, most people don't pay much attention to politics until the final stretches of campaigns. And this happened in the final stretch. So my, my, my hint of hope there um, is that um, there is there is a, still a fundamental decency to most Americans. Um, you know, the, most people are not barking at the moon. Um, uh, the party structures, and particularly the Republican Party structure, has been captured by extremists. So there are many structural explanations for why that is the case. And there is quite a large popular echo um, of it. But that doesn't mean to say that the majority of Americans um, approve of this kind of really quite reprehensible behavior. And uh, I, st I still hold the line that there is an exhausted majority out there yeah. that is, has essentially been disenfranchised um, by each of their parties. And you, you mentioned DeSantis and the, the, he, he does seem to have quite a bit of momentum, but he, he also seems to have been careful not to discuss foreign policy issues, perhaps for fear of of, of looking too much like he's he's seeking the presidency. Do you have any insights as to his worldview, how he views the world beyond the United States? You mentioned, for example, the, the um, affection for Orban in parts of the Republican Party. You know, would he share uh, that kind of view? For sure. You know, he would be an Orban Republican, DeSantis. Uh, uh, if you haven't, uh, which you may not have, seen um, uh, the closing election ad by the DeSantis campaign, um, where he talks about God making, and this is unironically, God making DeSantis an instrument of God's will. Um, you should watch it. This isn't a joke, this, this ad. This is entirely in earnest. Um, and uh, it's extraordinary, really. I, I've, I've never quite seen a uh, political advertisement like it. And it did him no harm. He won 60% of the vote. Florida is no longer a, a swing state. It's a red state. And DeSantis, not Trump, is king of Florida. But why is DeSantis king of it? Because he's become the cultural culture war warrior. Um, because he's passed the don't say gay law that bans teachers from referring to their sexuality if they're not heterosexual. Um, 
because um, he was really aggressive in terms of pushing back against federal COVID regulations because he uses the power of the state to punish companies like Disney or the local um, uh, baseball team um, if they do anything progressive sounding with, with their HR policy. Um, he uses the power of the state to push a moral cultural agenda and talks about God in sort of brazen ways even by this country's standards that that take people by surprise so that's urbanism um that's essentially urbanism and i think that's where the republican party is moving um whether desantis himself you know has the um charisma to fill trump's shoes is a quite different question i don't think he's a very good retail politician because he's such a florida figure you know, Florida is really becoming to conservatives what California has long been for liberals. California really is becoming ground zero for red state politics, uh, red America politics. Um, but because of that, I'm not really, I don't really have that much of a sense in particular of what his foreign policy would be. But I think he would be very much in the uh, very hawkish camp on China. The question mark I have is, you know, whether he's a Putinista or not. I don't have any evidence either way. Okay. Okay. Um, could we could we at least say he might not have the recklessness of of Trump, the unpredictability? Um, for the, for those of us who are sort of dreading the the, the prospect of another four years of uh, a lot of uncertainty coming from the U.S. rather than stability, would he at least not be cause as many surprises? Yeah, I think it's hard to be as flippant and capricious and personal about everything as Trump. So you could almost, by definition, anybody who replaced Trump would be less unpredictable than Trump. Um, and the way I think DeSantis is uh, marketing himself is two ways. One, he's younger, he's 42, I think, uh, you know, different generation, um, which, you know, if Biden is gonna run again, um, would be a very potent line. Um, and two, that he's the competent Trumpian. He's okay. the, the sort of consistent, thoughtful, we got a plan and we're going to implement it, Trumpian, rather than the Trumpian who says, oh, I just got off the phone to Kim Jong-un and, you know, we, we're in love. You know, that that's just like, uh, took everybody, including Trump's wife, by surprise. Um, that's not the kind of Trumpian DeSantis would be. But the point I want to underline is he would be a Trumpian. An, an America first, a MAGA Republican. That is the Republican Party. And okay, you know, very specific. I'm sure there's there's no way you can answer this, but something like NATO, you know, would he could could you see the Republican Party under him or anybody else pulling out of NATO? Um uh well, I could see a resumption of Trumpian complaints about NATO. You're not spending enough, you're not providing your fair share of weapons to Ukraine. I guess you know you would target more France and Spain on that front rather than um, Britain or Poland or Germany. But um, uh, you can see that pulling out of NATO would, I think, I think it would be very popular with the base. It would be deeply unpopular with the Republican elites. Um, so there would be a split there. Um, it would also be uh, extremely unpopular with the broader U American electorate. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that 
a future Trump wouldn't do that. But the most plausible person I can see doing that is Trump. And, let, and let's just sort of remind ourselves, I think this is the beginning of the end for Trump. Um, but, you know, that's been said before. Um, and we'll see. Um, he still leads the polls amongst Republicans to, as their favorite to be nominee in 2024. So I'm not writing him off completely. Um, he's planning to announce his um, 2024 campaign in Mar-a-Lago next Tuesday. You know, I, I'm planning to rewatch Nightmare on Elm Street number seven because I think that would be more reassuring. But he's going to do it again and we're going to get deja vu. And you, you definitely think that will go ahead next Tuesday, despite the the not so successful elections they've just had? Well, I know that every senior Republican and every advisor to Trump is saying, please don't, please don't go ahead, please delay, postpone. And it's conceivable he might, but you know, he's very stubborn and prideful. Um, uh, my bet would still be on him going ahead. And he's been sending emails, you know, the fundraising emails in the last um, two, three days saying um, uh, Tuesday's going to be the biggest day ever and the greatest, whatever, you know, his usual language. And maybe to conclude on the on, on the presidential uh, next presidential race, do you think I see your paper is reporting that Biden is talking about making a decision on running again and he's leaning in that direction. Do, do you think he's 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 capable of just from an age perspective? We had Frank Luntz on here a couple of weeks ago and he was of the view that he simply just had had declined um, and wouldn't be physically able to uh, run for another uh, term. I think this week might have energized him a bit. I mean, you're, um, he's going to head off, maybe it's tomorrow, I forget when, he'll go to Egypt for the COP27, he'll then carry on to the ASEAN summit in Cambodia, and then to the G20 summit in Bali. And there's going to be a summit, um, most likely between he and Xi Jinping. Putin won't be turning up. So this is kind of going to be a good few days where a reboid Biden, who once again has confounded low expectations, he's been plagued to some degree on merit throughout his political life with low expectations, and he keeps, you know, beating them as he has this week. Um, so I would have thought psychologically, you know, he's probably in the frame of mind he is going to run again. Uh, if, however... It turns out that Trump is a, a really a deeply wounded animal and that it's going to be somebody younger like DeSantis. I suspect the pressure on him to drop out would become acute. You know, it, it really Biden's Biden's the, the Trump slayer. He's not the 42 year old sunny state governor slayer. That's a, a, a harder, a harder role to imagine him playing nowadays. And if he did pull out, would you put money on any particular person of the Democratic Party? Would you? Would you? Is there any name that that you have a hunch about? Well, I would put money against Kamala Harris. Right. I just don't think she's got the chops, and almost nobody I know thinks she's got the chops to do this. She's just not that good a politician. Um, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the just re-elected governor of Michigan, um, she's impressive. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the transportation secretary and a more general spokesman, very lively one, including a lot on Fox for uh, the, the Biden administration. He's pretty smart. Um, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, Amy Klobuchar, who ran last time, the senator from Minnesota. The, the, there is a, 
there is a deeper bench than a lot of people suppose. Um, the danger, of course, is if, you know, a sitting democratic administration gets into a sort of uh, feisty primary season with, that includes the vice president, um, that you could get a sort of rerun of Chicago 1968, you know, LBJ's announcing at the last moment, I'm not running, running again, and then it sort of all goes off the rails. Um, that would be the danger. Okay, an interesting, uh, an interesting thought to to end. Ed, uh, many thanks as always for for joining us. Uh, a, a lot there, and um, really appreciate your time as always. It's a great pleasure as always. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, have a great day. Thanks a lot, and thanks everybody, everyone for joining. <laughs>